So if you guys can open your Bibles, we are going to be turning to Daniel. Daniel 4, 34 to 35. Okay. Daniel 4, 34 to 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is good to be with you. Uh, some of you were remembering that I've been here before, and it's a joy to be back. Uh, I'm going to have to live with where things are, too. Okay, you're going to fix that for me, Spencer? You are the man. You're on a full night's sleep, I can tell. That is sweet. That's perfect. That's so good. Thank you. Well, yeah, uh, as Andrea said, I'm the uh, regional director in Ontario with a network called C2C Network. And our vision essentially is that people from different backgrounds within the body of Christ, different denominations, would be inspired to engage in church planting and that denominations would link arms and uh, unity would elevate within the body of Christ in Canada for the sake of mission. We're all about working with a whole variety of different groups who want to start gospel-centered churches, churches that are mission-focused, churches that are led by the Holy Spirit and empowered by Him, and it's a real joy. Uh, As I was just sort of thinking to give you some sort of a little bit of an Ontario perspective, a few things come to mind Uh, recently. I spent some time this week in Ottawa with a friend, John. John's life uh, was actually destroyed by a cocaine addiction. His marriage was uh, ruined. Um, uh, He he was um, uh, really in a place of complete bondage, and and God met him, set him free from his addiction, uh, restored his marriage, and ultimately called John into uh, a work of church planting. And in Ottawa, Union City Church, uh, on Wednesday night, I was hanging out with them in in a prayer meeting and communion time with people who uh, are themselves being rescued out of addiction, all all kinds of addictions. Um, And it's not the only thing that Union City Church is sort of only focused on people who are struggling with addiction, but it's a church that is so welcoming to people who uh, are coming uh, into a relationship with Jesus in a place of real brokenness in their lives. And so John's just one story of someone that I get to work with. Another guy I want to mention, too, is Obeyed, a new friend of mine in Toronto. And Obeyed has an amazing story. He grew up in Afghanistan, was always a seeker of truth, but his search for truth led him into the Taliban. And Obeyed shares stories of participating aggressively within that to sort of rise up. It's almost like if you know the story of Paul as a Pharisee in the New Testament, Obeyed reminds me of that because he was so devoted to whatever the Taliban would teach him. Um, He tragically shares stories with us of um, being a participant in public executions in Afghanistan that were uh, administered in accordance with Sharia law there, I guess, and 
uh, just terrible things that he was involved with. But ultimately, God woke him up that the answer was not in Islam. And he began a search uh, originally online. He met Jesus through a ministry. He was, uh, anyway, long story short, also called into church planting. And in Toronto, he's gathering with other believers from Afghani backgrounds, and they, as a church, have begun uh, three home churches with Muslims uh, from Afghanistan in the GTA. These are sort of like, I don't know, secret churches, in a sense, and uh, home churches in Toronto. So it's just, it's such a joy for me uh, to really just come alongside these stories, see how God is calling people, see how God has gifted people, and then do whatever we can uh, to facilitate and encourage. And uh, you need to know that Church of the City is a huge partner in what we're doing. Matt invests a tremendous amount of energy training church planters with me, Uh, in a program we call Incubator. And of course, it's been a lot of fun to get to know Jeremiah and Catherine. They came through an assessment process with us at C2C. And again, as he's uh, apprenticing here and getting ready to be sent out, we get to be alongside that journey too, involved in some of his training and coaching and and things like that. So just a real joy uh, and privilege to be here. Thanks to you're generous to us financially, and we need that help. So we really appreciate your partnership in that respect as well. Well, uh, a king humbled, uh, Daniel chapter 4. This is a long uh, uh, chapter of scripture, and so I was merciful to Andrea. I didn't have you read the whole chapter, Um, but I do want to sort of summarize what this chapter is about as we get into it, and uh, the story, um, I guess it's worth pointing out at the beginning that this is is a testimony. It starts out in, in the voice of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And so if you have a Bible and look there at verse 1, he just says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the, in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. So this is like him talking to us, which is, which is really cool. And uh, this is God's word, but it also is a personal testimony of an individual. And he tells a story of uh, being interrupted uh, on a, what sounds like he was enjoying a, a perfectly good day, and he had a dream. And as you know, uh, this is not the first dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. If you're familiar with Daniel, you know that he's already had a dream uh, as part of this book, and that it was troubling to him, and that Daniel was the one who was able not only to interpret that dream, but by God's power to tell him what his dream had been in the first place, And now Nebuchadnezzar is having a second dream. Isn't that encouraging? Nebuchadnezzar uh, is not part of uh, God's covenant with with Israel. Uh, Of course, if you've been in this series, you know this is a time of captivity for for God's people. And that Daniel's been swept up in that and some of his uh, friends. But God is pursuing this man. And he's pursuing him in a way that I think uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, would understand. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar values dreams. He expects them to be significant. And, uh, and so God is interrupting this man's life with a witness uh, about himself. And so he has this, this dream, and I think we can go to the next slide. This is going to be... A, a bit challenging maybe for me to, so forgive me as I look back and make sure that I'm on track here. But he has this dream 
uh, about a tree, and it grows and it grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was good for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So his dream starts in a really positive way, and he sees this big tree growing, and it's a fruitful tree, and it's a shade-giving tree, and it seems to be a tree that's providing shelter and provision, uh, nourishment for uh, all kinds of animals. Also, this is a massive tree, and in his dream, it's like this is a tree you can, no matter where you are in the world, you can, you can look and see this tree. And then the dream takes a, uh, a scary tone, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar tells us that a watcher, a holy one, uh, comes from heaven with a message saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth and let him, now not let it, but let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. We're not sure ever uh, in this story what those seven periods are. Could be seven weeks, could be seven months, uh, maybe even longer, we're not sure. But seven periods of time. Uh, this tree, which now seems to be a person in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, is going to live as an animal. That tree is going to be cut down. And then finally, uh, of course, as he shares this dream, um, and you can read this in, in Daniel 4, he, he sort of gathers everybody, all the, all the magicians, anyone who could interpret this dream and asks them for help. Uh, it's kind of strange because he knows that Daniel properly interpreted a dream for him before, but he only gets to Daniel last, and then Daniel brings a clear interpretation of the dream. And here's the interpretation. Daniel reluctantly tells Nebuchadnezzar, this is a dream about you, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Why? Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And gives it to whom he will. Your kingdom shall be confirmed to you from the time that you know heaven rules. The message here is Nebuchadnezzar, you're giving yourself too much credit. You're failing to acknowledge the reality that over you there is a sovereign God, the Most High, and it's at his sovereign discretion who is raised up as a leader and who is brought low. And you're not giving credit, Nebuchadnezzar, where it's due. You're not recognizing the sovereign power of God. So that scene closes. Nebuchadnezzar's had his dream. He's received this ominous interpretation. And then we go into a next phase of the story. And it tells us uh, that at the end of 12 months, so a year after the interaction with Daniel where he had this dream and was given this interpretation. This is in Daniel chapter 4 verse 29. At the end of 12 months, 
Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, I just want to pause for a moment there, and I, I'm on thin ice here because I, I didn't do any kind of word study. I'm not really sure of the significance, but in English, it's kind of interesting that the word is that Nebuchadnezzar answered in this moment. In other words, it's almost like the stuff that Daniel told him about his dream, this great tree that gets cut down and how he will live as an animal because he needs to learn the lesson that God is sovereign even over people like him, that message has been rolling around in Nebuchadnezzar's head and this is his answer. This is what sort of comes out verbally in this moment. And it's quite a uh, strong statement as he looks out over Babylon, Babylon, and you know that the hanging gardens of Babylon is, is one of the wonders of the world. Babylon was, was a city like no other. And he says this, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? In the context of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had a year prior and the interpretation that he received, it's like he's saying, you know what? I built this. Let's be honest. I mean, I don't know what that dream was about. I don't know what that interpretation was about. But who came up with this idea? Who gathered the resources? That was me. I deserve credit for all this. And of course, this is a photograph of Babylon. I'm just kidding. You were supposed to... Anyway, that's somebody's idea of what it looked like. Uh, there was no photography at the time, to be clear. But as soon as this rebellious thought comes out of his mind, and he says, you know, this is my city. This is my empire. Scripture says, and there isn't a slide for this, but I'll just read it. While the words were still in the king's mouth, verse 31 of Daniel 4, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has, has departed from you. I, I don't, it, there seems to be some generosity and grace of God operating in this story, just the delay of a year and this, this moment that now that you've said it, now that you've emphatically declared that in your opinion, you deserve credit for all this. You are a self-made man. I'm going to hold you accountable for that. And the kingdom is taken away from you. And again, if you have a Bible, I, uh, there's not a slide for this particularly, but it, it goes on to say that um, the curse, the punishment, the discipline... Uh, against Nebuchadnezzar uh, came, to came to pass. The kingdom is departed from you. You shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you will be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over, to, over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. So what? I mean, this is a story about an absolute monarch in ancient times who had a kingdom 
that really cannot be compared to any modern empire. His, his, the reach of his dominion is hard to fathom. Uh, you'll read in, in Daniel chapter 5 as you keep going that Daniel describes Nebuchadnezzar's power in that chapter as saying he could say when someone would die, he could say when someone would live. He was never questioned. Of course this man became proud. Of course this guy had a problem with pride. Of course he needed to learn that there was a sovereign God in control of all things. He needed to be humbled dramatically. But what does that have to do with us? We're not particularly powerful people, at least speaking for myself. I don't know all of you. But are we really likely to have this kind of a problem, to lose perspective on who's in control? Pride is a, is a challenging uh, area, challenging. We can skip ahead a couple of slides here. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry, you were holding off. That was good. <laughs> Pride is challenging. I mean, few people sit around in, in their homes privately and think, you know, my biggest problem is that I'm too proud. That's my issue. You know, very few of us would self-diagnose pride as a problem. In fact, when you think about it, if pride is your problem, by virtue of it being your problem, you're never going to identify it as your problem, are you? So we need some help to sort of figure out whether a message about pride, whether a message about submitting to the authority of God and really cultivating pride in our lives is relevant to us. We need some help, and, and C.S. Lewis is helpful to us in this regard. The first quote up here that you've already read, um, but let me catch up to you, just reminds us that pride is pervasive, if you want to find out how proud you are, then the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take notice of me or shove their oar in, you know, try to take control of a situation or patronize me or show off? The point is that everyone's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. You know who hates proud people? Proud people. You know who hates people who dominate a situation? It's somebody who wishes they were dominating that situation. You know someone who resents it when other people get people laughing? It's the guy who wished his joke had done that. And right away when I read this, I'm like, thank you, C.S. Lewis, and not thank you. Because the truth is, I get provoked all the time by people who I think, how, how come they think they're so important? Why do they have to go to the front of the line? You know, why do they get that parking spot? Every single day, if we re rehearse, or even the last week, it wouldn't be hard for us to just put up our hand and say, here's somebody that ticked me off. This was the situation. I can relate to this. And C.S. Lewis is wisely and gently suggesting to us that perhaps Nebuchadnezzar is not the only one who needs to know something about the problem of pride. Pride is pervasive. The other thing, sadly, is that pride is, 
is miserable. It's a miserable experience to be consumed with pride. Again, from C.S. Lewis, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And this is what makes pride a miserable experience because there's constantly someone who's doing better than however well we're doing. And we can't enjoy the things that God is doing in our lives or the good experiences in our lives because somebody else is posting a better picture right after the one that we just posted of our lives. Let's just think about pride in terms of the psychology of pride, the, the social impact of pride, and the spirituality of pride. Psychologically, Pride is relentlessly self-focused. It constantly filters through questions like, how am I doing? How are others treating me? Am I being recognized? Am I being ignored? Let's be honest, we think a lot about ourselves. We go into social situations, homes, backyard parties, work teams, constantly aware of how well we're doing. Socially, uh, pride is competitive to the core. How do I put this on the slide? Resenting some and dismissing others, pride constantly ranks and compares. Certain people are important because being near them is of some advantage to us. It gives us some social credit. It helps us move in the direction we want to go. When we're consumed with pride, certain other people just don't matter. They're no good to us. And so pride is constantly competitive. The essence of pride is to compete. Spiritually, pride is manipulative. It warps our thinking about God to the point where his worth is measured by how completely he meets our perceived needs, or resolves our fears. And it's at this spiritual point of pride where God becomes a tool or a technology for our purposes. And that's a terrifying thought. It's a, just to pause for a minute. It's a terrifying thought that you can be highly religious and never know God because of pride. That you're operating with a false idea of who God is, that he really exists to serve your needs and interests. And so you never actually see God for who he's revealing himself to be because your pride is obscuring your vision. You can be highly spiritual and highly proud. We have exist, uh, uh, examples of that all over the Bible. The trick is that so often we just dismiss those, oh, those are the bad guys in the Bible. I'm over here with Jesus. I'm one of the good guys. 
It's helpful for us to think about how we relate to God and whether we've made him an object in our story, a credit card spiritually in our back pocket to pull out whenever we need him. But I'm intrigued by the things that we know Nebuchadnezzar has already recognized about God earlier in the book of Daniel. Because he seems to be really interested in, in the ways that God can be helpful. We see a symptom of pride in Nebuchadnezzar's spirituality. And I think this is on the next slide. The first thing that Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 2, this is where Nebuchadnezzar has that dream. You remember the dream where he sees a statue and the top of the statue is gold and then the next part of the statue is silver and then there's a bronze part and then there's an iron part and then the feet are clay mixed with iron. That's where feet of clay comes from, weakness of this statue. And if you recall, or maybe you haven't heard this story, when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, this is the kind of absolute leader that he is. He says to people, here's the deal. You have to tell me what the dream is and then tell me what it means. And if you don't, I'll kill you. And the story goes that he was about to kill all of the wise people, all of the, the people who had sort of prophetic gifts and those kinds of abilities in the nation, except that Daniel prayed and God gave him the content of the dream and its interpretation. And at the end of this uh, experience, this is what uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar is really intrigued by God because or by Daniel's God, because he can learn information. And we see this as an obsession within Babylon, an interest in the significance of things and what's going to happen and what's going on. They're a highly sort of superstitious and spiritual culture. And so it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God, but only insofar as God can help him get the information that he's looking for. He goes, I like that God. That's, he, he could be helpful to me. And then uh, the story of Daniel's friends who are thrown into the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar res recognizes God as a rescuer. He says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship uh, any God except their own, for there is no God who is able to rescue in this way. A God who reveals things that I need to know? Lord, what do you want me to do? What's the purpose of my life? What's my future going to be? Who should I marry? What should I do with my money? Should we invest it over here? Where should we live? Should we buy that house? What about that car? The vacation that I'm thinking about taking. Isn't it interesting how often even in our spiritual lives we come to God curious for answers about our lives? Maybe we're a little bit like Nebuchadnezzar, interested in God as a revealer of things. And of course the reality is that all of us, and necessarily so, call out to God in, in times of trouble. 
Even atheists pray when situations get desperate enough. And Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I like God as far as he's a revealer of the things I want to know and as far as he can rescue me when I'm in trouble. And my spiritual life devolves to that level. That is sort of a default spiritual position before God. I'm interested in the answers he can give me about the things I'm curious about, and I'm interested in his help when I need it. Otherwise, I'm on my own. So the problem of pride in my life is revealed in even the way that I relate to God, and I have things in common with the things that seem to have intrigued Nebuchadnezzar. So, pride is an issue for you and me. It's not just for absolute monarchs. And pride is serious. Back to C.S. Lewis, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Sexual immorality, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is a big deal. And it's our problem too. It's not just Nebuchadnezzar's. C.S. Lewis's ideas about pride being the, the fountain of all other evil can be traced back to a passage like Romans chapter 1. I won't read this whole thing, but if you look at the highlighted text, it's talking about people who could look out at creation that we sang about at the beginning of the morning today and still deny God. And it says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Everything about him was on display, and they turned their backs. That's pride. And out of that pride came the destruction of creation, the destruction of the, the, their own selves, the way they thought, the things they valued, the things they were willing to do to pursue pleasure. All of that was corrupted because they pridefully turned away from God. Let me just read some from my notes here. Pride is a huge problem. It's not just a problem for ancient kings. It's our problem. It is the wellspring of sin. It is the fault line that breaks open into a chasm between us and God. Pride infects our minds, destroys our relationships, and twists our spirituality. Pride puts us at the center of our thoughts our social interactions, and our religion. It turns every object, every interaction, and person into a tool that's evaluated on the basis of whether they're useful to me. Even God is only God to a pride-filled heart as long as he helps me get what I want. Pride destroys everything in its path. It is the way that leads to death. So what's the hope? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, in the passage that Andrea read for us towards the end of this chapter, shares the hope that at the end, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. And he goes into this song about 
the everlasting kingdom of God. Here's a simple idea. Pride is not resolved by focusing on pride. We need to look away from ourselves and up to something higher. We need to look to God. Timothy Keller says, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more about myself. It's not an internal focus. Oh, I'm so proud. i got to work on that. Can you see how that's insidious and that, that becomes increasingly a self-focused thing itself? The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. And that's harder to do than it sounds. It's like trying to not think of a pink elephant. Trying to not think about yourself. Almost as soon as you begin to succeed, you're thinking, oh, good, look at how humble I'm becoming. This is really going well. And you've tripped again. What could capture our attention? What could capture our hearts in such a way that we could be broken out of this slavery to pride and self-focus? You know, we have a truth about God that Nebuchadnezzar never could have imagined. Nebuchadnezzar came to know God as the one who is the king above all kings. Listen to how we know our God. Paul writing to the Philippians, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He's talking about humility. Let each one of you Look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus went from the highest place in outside of universe, outside of time, in the throne room of heaven, and he willingly descended to the lowest conceivable place we can imagine, dying on a cross, and not just dying physically, but bearing there the sin of the whole world. In another letter, Paul says, he became sin for us. He entered into the most despised place. Jesus humbled himself for us. And Paul says, that gospel message, that truth, I will never be ashamed of that because the gospel is the power of God to transform people. You want to be liberated from pride? Look at Jesus. Look at what he's done for us. Look at how far he descended to save you. Worship him. Focus on him. And allow the beauty of that truth to change our hearts. I mentioned earlier, and this is in closing, that this is the second dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Remember the first one, the statue of the different materials. And then he says in his dream he saw a stone that was not cut by any human hand. 
And that stone strikes the statue and topples all that's represented there. All the kingdoms are toppled over. And that sounds like a violent act, right? That stone comes. How did that happen? Because we know that that stone not cut by human hands is a reference to Jesus, don't we? How did this Jesus who topples every kingdom to establish his kingdom forever, how did he do it? He did it by allowing himself to be crushed. The prophet Isaiah says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Consider the crushing of Jesus. By his wounding, even our pride can be healed. By his Holy Spirit, God is so anxious to help us to make more of Jesus in our hearts. As soon as that's what you want to do, as soon as that's your desire, the Holy Spirit is rushing to your aid. In fact, he's already there. He's the reason you're thinking that way. You have the resources of Almighty God to cultivate the beauty of what Jesus has done and the beauty of who he is in your heart to make him your obsession. He is the only safe obsession you can ever have. And as your hearts become, and as our hearts become consumed with the beauty of who Jesus is, there is no way for pride to live there. The beauty of Jesus just evicts it. And so that's our hope. This is some of what uh, Paul has in mind, and this is the last slide, slide from Romans 12. If we're out of sync, oh, we're in sync. How great. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Let your pride go. Surrender. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, which is filled with messages promoting pride. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Renewing your mind with what? Renewing your mind with the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. That by, test, that by testing you may discern what, the will, what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I am just so thankful that there is an answer to the pride that lurks in my heart. That Jesus has done everything that needs to be done so that I can be free of pride. And that answer is for you. We're going to transition into some uh, songs of worship. And as I understand it, I think it's a beautiful thing. It's a regular opportunity in, in the reunion time for you to come forward. And as the musicians are playing and some of us will be singing songs of worship, that might be you. You might want to come forward and, and pray. And there will be some people here to pray with you. And uh, I know that if there's a stirring in your heart that Jesus would grow to become more beautiful and more all-consuming in your life, that that is from God. That is from the Holy Spirit himself. He is speaking to you. And I think it would be a wonderful thing for you to take that little prompting in your heart and come forward and have someone pray with you, to not just walk away 
saying, yeah, I heard something from the Lord, but to make something of that. Make this day important in your life of learning to love Jesus more by taking time to pray. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share. It's been a joy.